Hi, this is Pastor Emily McGinley from Urban Village Church, Hyde Park, Woodlawn. If you've been to UVC, you'll know that we seek to be three things, bold, inclusive, and relevant. We know that there are countless folks across the country and out there in podcast land like yourself, seeking a message that will bring insight, hope, encouragement, and joy as we do this thing called faith. Please consider making a financial gift to help us with this work of inspiring, equipping, and sending out agents of gospel life and inclusive love. Just go to www.urbanvillagechurch.org forward slash give. Thanks for listening, and God bless. Our scripture comes from Acts 16, 6 through 15. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the regions of Phrygia and Galatia because the Holy Spirit kept them from speaking the word in the province of Asia. When they approached the province of Mysia, they tried to enter the province of Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus wouldn't let them. Passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas instead. A vision of a man from Macedonia came to Paul during the night. He stood urging Paul, come over to Macedonia and help us. Immediately after he saw the vision, we prepared to leave for the province of Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to proclaim the good news to them. We sailed from Troas straight for Samothrace and came to Neapolis the following day. From there, we went to Philippi, a city of Macedonia's first district and a Roman colony. We stayed in that city several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the riverbank, where we thought there might be a place for prayer. We sat down and began to talk with the women who had gathered. One of those women was Lydia, a Gentile god-worshipper from the city of Thyatira, a dealer in purple cloth. As she listened, the Lord enabled her to embrace Paul's message. Once she and her household were baptized, she urged, Now that you have decided that I am a believer in the Lord, come and stay in my house. And she persuaded us. May God add a blessing to our understanding of this scripture. Let's come together in a word of prayer. God, we give you thanks for the gift that it is to gather together and to lean in close and hear what it is that your spirit is whispering to us this morning. Open our hearts and minds to receive that message, whatever it may be, with openness, with courage, with the hope and trust that you are doing a transformative good work in us. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So I recently heard an older episode of This American Life, uh, a podcast show that is pretty popular on NPR. And it was a two-part episode that unpacked the uh, complex experience of policing in the United States from the perspective of police. And at one point in the show, the story shifted to the Las Vegas Police Department, which in an effort to address some of the poor ratings of their officer-involved shootings, received actually from the Department of Justice a list of 75 things that they could do to improve. And one of the items on this list was in the area of implicit bias. Implicit bias gets a little more attention these days, uh, but in case you're not familiar, it's basically the feeling, the instincts, the assumptions that we bring and have about people, often without even being aware of it, right? Usually this shows up around gender and especially around race. And there's a test you can take about it, take, um, yeah, take if you're kind of interested in exploring more. If you Google Harvard implicit bias test, um, it'll come up and you can kind of test yourself, see where you are. Um, so anyway, the police department in Las Vegas decided they, they were going to tackle this implicit bias thing, and as part of this, they began to mandate courses for their officers. 
Now, one of their officers, Brett Brosnahan, shared about um, an experience that he had, actually, um, with a pretty well-known event shootout that happened in Las Vegas that he was involved with and how his own implicit bias played out. So we're going to exactly listen to a recording like of that. Man. And every time I've stopped them, I've found guns or, or dope on them. So you just put the traits from the person that was guilty onto the person that's innocent. And does that, I mean, does that make you feel bad when you realize that you think that? Do you know what I mean, yeah, like, about yourself? It is. It's, um, it's scary because it's not fair. It's not fair for me to assume that this guy is going to have the same background. I mean, he, uh, he might be the CEO of a company and just out for a walk and didn't want to walk to the crosswalk. I don't know. These days, whenever Brett rolls up on a situation, a traffic stop or questioning a suspect, whatever it is, he says he tries to keep his mind totally open, thinking, this could be anyone. The class also made him reassess something that happened to him that's now legend at the department. It actually happened a month before he took the training, and it was horrible. Last June, on a Sunday morning, two of Brett's fellow officers were shot to death in a pizza place on the north side of the city. Brett responded to the scene not long after. The other customers, of course, were freaking out yelling, he went that way, he went that way, meaning the shooter. Brett figured it might be a revenge killing of some sort, either against cops in general or these two officers in specific. In that area, I mean, it's a high gang environment. There's a lot of gang members there. And um, Did you think male, female, black, white, anything like that? No. Male, probably black or Hispanic. I mean, northeast area part of Las Vegas, it's a large black and Hispanic population. Um, so... You know, you, you go with the odds. Brett takes off on foot in the direction everyone's pointing and eventually ends up at a Walmart. Customers, employees, everyone is flooding out of the store, screaming. So now, this isn't just an isolated shooting of two cops. This is an active shooter in a crowded public place. And at this point, the color of the suspect in Brett's mind changes from black or Hispanic to white. Brett knows about active shooter situations. He trains other officers in how to deal with these cases. Columbine, Aurora, Sandy Hook. When Brett thinks active shooter, he thinks young white male. The whole story is too long to tell here, but in short, Brett ultimately finds himself in an empty Walmart getting ready to ambush the gunman in the automotive section. It's a young white male, semi-automatic pistol in his hand. He doesn't see Brett. And I start to make my final turn to get a good angle on him. And I come almost face-to-face -face with a female, probably four or five feet away. And keep in mind, all this now is happening in fractions of a second. But my first thought is, why is she in here? And then I look more at her, and I'm like, she's not a victim. She's not a customer. She wants to be exactly where she is right now. In all the commotion, people yelling and pointing and telling Brett where the shooter was, no one ever mentioned there were two of them. Brett and the woman exchanged gunfire from four or five feet away. Miraculously, she missed him. Brett hit her in the shoulder. He ran out of the store and let another team of officers take over. After a firefight, the male shooter was dead. His wife shot herself in the head. So this was what was on Brett's mind when he went into the implicit bias training class a month later. When they started to explain. So implicit bias um, is something that's so far under the radar, you don't even 
realize that it's actively driving the decisions that you make. If you're fairly self-aware, you might realize it after the fact, um, like Officer Brosnahan did. Um, but it's so embedded with you, it takes a tremendous amount of personal vigilance um, to recognize it. Tremendous vigilance, or in the case of our passage this morning, the work of the Holy Spirit. Our passage for today opens with Paul and his mission partners in the middle of their tour to spread the gospel. This is actually their, their second time around. And, and it seemed like they really wanted to go to Asia. Scripture talks about them bumping around Phrygia and Galatia. But for whatever reason, the Holy Spirit was kind of stiff-arming them with the rest of Asia. Maybe Paul had just had a feeling about it, right? Asia, that's where I need to be. But then Paul has this dream about a Macedonian guy telling him to come over to Macedonia. So they bounce. And Paul, even though his specific mission is to non-Jews, bless his heart, Paul keeps going to places where Jews gather. And because it's maybe because he's chicken or because he doesn't really know where to begin, what I will say, though, is that Paul has yet to convert a single Gentile. And up to this point, there have been two other Gentiles um, ever uh, recorded uh, as having converted, a eunuch and a centurion, but those were under the leadership of Philip and Peter. So Paul is kind of struggling in his mission, and maybe he's feeling a little deflated about the whole project. This is the second mission tour, like I said, and things are kind of feeling a little bit womp-womp for him. He feels like he's doing the faithful thing, but nothing is moving. So when he has this dream, he feels like this is his chance, right? It is in Asia, but Macedonia will do. It's the, the warm side of the Aegean Sea, at least, right? So Paul and his people get into town, and they spend a few days getting the lay of the land, try to figure out their game plan. And then on the Sabbath, they head to the edge of town um, for prayer, and their guard is down. They're assuming that God ain't got nothing big planned for them that day. So they show up, and they're talking with the other women who are gathered for prayer. But then something weird kind of happens. This woman, Lydia, she's there, and she's described as a Gentile God worshiper. In other words, she could hang with the Jews, but she couldn't be a Jew. But she was really, you know, just thirsty enough and open-minded enough to see that there was something really special at work in this community and just wanted to at least get as close as possible to it. But for Paul, he's not even looking at this woman, right? He's expecting a Macedonian, which makes sense, sort of. You see, Paul was in the city of Philippi, which I'm sure you all know was a city that was colonized by Rome. And even more tellingly, it was a centuriated city. And that means that Rome had plans for this city. See, centuriation was one of the first things that the Roman government did when they uh, acquired new land and began to form a new colony. They went into a neighborhood and then block by block began to measure length and width and worth and wealth of the land. Where is the best place to put a Whole Foods? Where should the Starbucks be? Exactly how should the luxury condos be situated so as to take maximum advantage of the aesthetic effects offered by the Aegean Sea and the sunrise and the sunset? What will be, where will be the most comfortable, attractive places where Roman people will want to be situated? Nothing has happened just yet, but you can kind of feel it coming with the fancy landscaping and the signs for new permits. And it's an area that is on the cusp of development. But maybe Paul isn't totally aware of this. All he knows is that he wanted to be in Asia, and now he's here on European soil, talking to these Jews plus one, and wondering how he's going to find this Macedonian dude, right? 
And so maybe he's not trying all that hard. Maybe he's just kind of making conversation because the real work begins when he kind of gets in uh, with the Macedonian men. And the ladies are like, oh, what brings you to Philippi? And he's like, well, I'm on a mission from God. And while he's talking, Lydia is leaning in closer and closer. And maybe Paul doesn't even realize she's there. But the minute he says something like, Yes, and this message of reconciliation is for anyone. Lydia bites, and she jumps in, and she says, anyone? And so here I'm going to pause, and I'm going to share a few things um, that for you to know about Lydia. You may have heard me talk about her in the past. The first thing is that Lydia is a businesswoman. In a culture that was not only male-dominated, but considers men to be the highest form of existence, Lydia is intelligent, entrepreneurial, and savvy. She makes her own decisions and calls her own shots. She's so strong-minded that some people might even describe her as nasty. Her business was selling luxury goods. That's what purple cloth was, a highly specialized luxury that only the wealthy could afford. And so Lydia is well-connected. Because she sells luxury goods, that not only means that she's well-to-do, it means she also has a network of relationships with wealthy and probably influential people, which had big implications for what Paul was trying to do. Finally, Lydia is from Thyatira. Most scholars talk about how Paul's first convert, Lydia, is European. But take a look at this map right here, as soon as it's up. Nope, that's not it. That's the centuriation. Take a look at that map and tell me my girl ain't from Asia right? First European convert? I don't think so. Thank God for the Holy Spirit, the way she moves and cuts through Paul's implicit bias, right? Because he's so busy looking for a Macedonian romantic encounter that he cannot see the Spirit literally wrapping everything up in a beautiful, perfect, bigly bow, right? Not only was the Spirit already at work within Lydia so that she was ready to receive and embrace Paul's message, that's what Methodists call prevenient grace, which is something you would learn about in our starting point small group. Not only was there this prevenient grace at work within Lydia, there was also an overflowing excitement and eagerness within her to throw open her doors, invite everyone in, and make possible whatever needed to happen so that Paul's efforts could be multiplied to other people, and especially people like her. People who didn't quite fit. People who were searching for a sense of community rooted in deep wisdom and love. People looking for an authentic community that would be willing to accept them for all of who they were, not just in spite of who they were. So there, this is the cool thing about my sister Lydia. You know, she put herself out there. I can tell, right? She's a, a go big or go home kind of gal. She says, I'm tired of living this treadmill life. What's the point? I've achieved my financial goals, my vocational goals, but there is something else missing. And so she shows up at this riverbank, week after week at that riverbank. She gets clo as close as she possibly can to this community of authentic love, and she makes herself available to God. And in spite of his shortcomings, in the middle of not knowing quite what to do, Paul goes and makes himself available to God. He's got these puzzle pieces kind of floating around in his mind, right? Asia, Gentile, Gentiles, Macedonia. How does it all come together, right? Simultaneously, because of Paul and in spite of Paul, the Spirit moves to bring them together. In Lydia, Paul got a twofer, right? He got his Asian and he got his foothold into a whole wealthy network of connected, open-minded um, Gentiles. But even more than that, he caught a glimpse, I think, uh, of what God intended to do with this next chapter of the gospel. It's not just the Gentiles, which felt pretty mind-blowing to the original communities. 
And it's not even the people who just like don't fit the mold. It's the people who break the mold completely. Lydia is just a prototype of the ragtag folk God's kingdom look like. The people who flip the script on the norm so that they can live into their truest, most life-giving selves. People like Lydia, who live in a male-dominated society where all the systems and structures and norms and expectations were set up to keep women dependent and muted. Who knew that she was what she was capable of and had the courage to go for it? A successful, financially independent immigrant businesswoman who leads her household toward a spiritual rebirth and, by the way, throwing open the doors for the possibility of others to experience God's transforming love, too. This place where two people feeling their way in faith find themselves face-to-face so that a completely unexpected thing can happen. This is a holy space where two people can encounter one another and be mutually surprised in ways that are delightful and maybe a little intimidating or disorienting, but also ignite hope. Throughout scripture, it was people like Lydia, hospitable, generous people who are willing to get out of their comfort zones, to connect with God and others in a new way. People like that, it was and continues to be these kinds of people who help create these holy spaces in homes, in churches, on riverbanks, wherever, to help people experience Jesus' gospel of reconciliation and wholeness of life for all. Later on, when Paul writes his letter to the Philippian church, a church you know that Lydia has played a big part in making possible, he writes about how much joy he has when he thinks of them. But further in the letter, you see that things aren't perfect. In chapter 4, Paul mentions a disagreement that two people in the community are working through. And he urges them to come to an agreement. He doesn't really go into it. He just encourages them to work it out. Because here's the thing, even about amazing communities where God's transformative and surprising love shows up. They aren't perfect. You know, we get a lot, a lot of people who come through UVC, and so many people come alive and experience God's freedom and love in, in, this, in these powerful ways. But our community isn't perfect. And some of these people whose lives have been changed, who feel like their relationship with God has been resurrected because of what they've experienced at UVC, they are heartbroken when they come up against the limitations of who we are. And then they get angry, and then they leave. Even people who become members and start serving in leadership, they get so disillusioned by our humanness that they walk away. Whether it's because we try something crazy like blessing iPhones, or because we start moving through the real stuff of anti-racism work, or because we do not line up 100% with their worldview. And I have to say, if you're looking for a place that lines up 100% with your worldview, you may need to ask yourself what you're really after. And even more, you may need to think about who God really is in your life. And it's so painful for those of us who stay behind. It's really, really painful. It makes us feel discarded. It makes us feel flat. It makes us question, is God really doing something here? Staying committed choosing to remain and invest in this space where unlikely people are making surprising connections and come alive in unexpected ways, even and especially when things get tough. This is what it means to be community. This is what it means, actually, to be Christian community, to stay, to work it out, 
to have a temper tantrum and then show up again and work it out, to be committed to one another, to have a shared mission of something bigger than you or bigger than me, to push past and move through the everydayness and kind of, you know, eventual boredom sometimes that church can be so that we can see the bigger thing that we are building together over the long haul. These times when you feel, as Liz shared, so overwhelmed sometimes with life. And you say, you know what, I'm out. I don't need this. The Christian commitment is to stay, to keep showing up and keep pushing through. This is what it means to be Christian community, that we can count on each other. Our passage today is a reminder of what powerful things God can do when we just open ourselves to one another, and keep showing up. We don't know how long Lydia showed up at that riverbank. Sabbath after Sabbath, hoping just to catch a glimpse of who God is, who God could be in her life. Even sometimes when we're disappointed, even when we're sometimes just hanging on to the edges of the riverbank, right? Because we know that showing up and staying invested, providing space and opportunity for the Spirit to do what she does best, transform and transpire in spite of us and because of us, can make all the difference in the world. And not just for us, but for the community and the city that we call home. Lydia knew what the gospel could do for her and for people like her, and she was willing to invest her resources, her time, and her spirit into helping others know that kind of belonging. She wanted others to have access to that holy space where unlikely people meet and unexpected transformation happens because of people and in spite of people. She was willing to put herself out there to make it happen, not just at the beginning, right, but for the long haul. She was tenacious enough and experienced enough to stick it out when things got tough because that's what you learn when you're an immigrant businesswoman in a hostile culture, right? You keep going and you keep pushing. Because that's what it means to be committed. At UVC, we have some folks who have, like Lydia, made investments to help others have access to a holy space, this holy space. There is a couple from uh, Andersonville and another UVC who actually moved out of state who were so, saw the possibilities of what we could do if we um, really did an uh, intentional internal audit of our commitment or commitments around anti-racism who helped to fund our audit that we're at the cusp of beginning. Special gifts that they have given to the community for that purpose, even if they themselves will not continue to worship here. And there's another gentleman, actually one of our top givers, who never comes to UVC because he was so hurt by the church. Every year he gives over $50,000 just to help create a space where other LGBTQI Christians um, can experience inclusion. There are other micro-communities that have sprung up around the country as a result of um, Aaron James Brown, our discipleship director's efforts. Little communities who thought they were alone and found themselves plugged in, encouraged, and brought hope by what, what is happening here that they too can access. And then here, of course, at High Park Woodlawn, it is the financial and time and talent commitments of so many people who have created a holy, hospitable space here in the legacy of Lydia. People who give freely of themselves. Where are you being a Lydia? How are you being a Lydia? Where are you investing in community for the long haul, in spite of and because of people's brokenness and wonderfulness? And I hope, I hope we are in this 
sermon uh, series about stewardship, I hope that UBC is one of those places. We are not perfect, and yet God has done something here. God is doing something here. Colton said, God hasn't just made, but God is making beautiful things, right, that can leave a powerful and life-giving mark on this city. But it requires you. It requires you. It requires your investment and my investment in time, time spent in worship and service and small groups or intentional relationships, talents, gifts that you give to help strengthen our teams and our witness to God's love in this world, and money, financial commitments that help make our life together possible. All of these things come together to create a space unlike any other, a space where the Spirit can move and we can find ourselves surprised in spite of who we are and because of who we are. And I say thanks be to God for that. Let's pray. God, I thank you. We thank you that you show up and you do things in us, in spite of us and because of us, and that you surprise us with one another. Help us to stay committed in those times when those surprises are less than wanted, when it becomes harder than it is easy. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on this bigger thing that you are orienting our hearts and our minds and our energy toward so that we can continue to do your work of inclusive love-making and hospitable space-making in the spirit and in the legacy of your daughter so long ago, Paul's first convert, Lydia. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.